Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me to discuss what additional federal fiscal reforms Congress will attempt via raising the debt ceiling and revisiting budget cuts under sequestration is the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, Dr. Paul Vanderwater. Welcome, Paul. Pleasure to be here, David. Thank you, Paul. Before I introduce Paul more, more formally, let me begin with some context. As Dr. Robert Reischauer predicted during my November 29th podcast interview last month's fiscal cliff debate solved little. Raising the debt ceiling was left unaddressed despite the Treasury Department projecting it will spend up to the debt limit, $16.4 trillion, come mid or later February. In December, the Congress did agree to turn off budget cuts imposed by the Budget Control Act's sequestration provision, but for only two months or until March 1st, and Republicans continue to call for even more or additional cuts in federal spending. Though unspecified, they argue for an amount equal to the amount the debt ceiling is raised, or likely $1 trillion. Though the President has insisted he will not again negotiate budget cuts to win House support to raise the debt ceiling, he has said he is still open to approximately $1.5 trillion in savings via both spending reductions, or further spending reductions, and additional revenue. The Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, are motivated, due in part to excessive cuts in defense, to replace the $1.2 trillion sequestration savings formula with another approach that includes fewer or no savings in defense and more in other domestic discretionary spending categories. That means cuts to Medicare and Social Security. So with that as background, let me now introduce uh, Dr. Vanderwater. Dr. Paul N. Vanderwater is a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, where he specializes in Medicare, Social Security, and health coverage issues. Previously, Dr. Vanderwater was Vice President for Health Policy at the National Academy for Social Insurance. From 01-05, he served as Deputy Commissioner for Policy at the Social Security Administration, and from 99-01, He was Associate Commissioner for Research, Evaluation, and Statistics at Social Security. Dr. Vanderwater also worked for 18 years at the Congressional Budget Office in a variety of capacities. He holds an A.B. with highest honors in economics from Princeton and was graduated from MIT with a Ph.D. in economics. And I'll conclude by saying he is, and I say with great respect, one of D.C.'s most preeminent federal budget wonks. So let's begin on background. Can you briefly, Paul, describe CBPP's mission? Uh, Yes, David. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities is a research and advocacy uh, organization uh, which is concerned with federal budget policy generally, but particularly uh, with supporting programs that help low- and moderate-income people, and that uh, includes uh, Medicare and Social Security, uh, because for them, uh, you know, the average income of Medicare and Social Security beneficiaries is only about $25,000 a year. Okay, thank you. So let's begin with big picture. With $2.3 trillion in budgetary savings already achieved in 2011 and 12, your center, the Center for Budget, is calling for an additional $1.4 <coughs> trillion in savings to stabilize the federal deficit. So the obvious question is, how did you determine this amount? Good, good question. Um, well, as you say, David, the um, you know, despite uh, you know 
offhand thoughts that uh, not a whole lot has been done about the budget deficit so far. That's actually not true. The problem hasn't been been solved, but Congress has taken uh, two substantial bites at the apple. First, as you said, through the uh, Budget Control Act of 2011, which put caps on discretionary spending, which is budget jargon for those programs that uh, receive annual funding through the appropriation process. Uh, and then secondly, through the most recent uh, fiscal cliff agreement, which did uh, increase the taxes, particularly on uh, upper income folks. Uh, so we have made, uh, you know, done, a, as you say, about $2.3 trillion in budgetary savings already. Um, we view, and most, uh, most economists like myself tend to view, uh, stabilizing the debt as a uh, reasonable intermediate-term goal. And by stabilizing the debt, uh, what I mean is to make sure that the debt doesn't grow any more rapidly than the economy grows. Obviously, as, uh, uh, as the labor force increases, as the people become more uh, productive, GDP grows from one year to the next. And that means that debt can grow modestly and still not uh, uh, represent a larger share of, of the economy. And what we've done here at the, at the Center on Budget is to use the latest Congressional Budget Office budget projections, those from August of last year, and figure out how much more deficit reduction would be needed over the next 10 years to achieve that goal, to make sure that the debt doesn't grow any faster than the economy. And, uh, by our, and there's no unique path, but using some reasonable assumptions, we've estimated that about $1.4 trillion in additional deficit reduction over the next 10 years would stabilize the debt at a level of about 73% of gross domestic product, which is our the, the measure for you know, how big our economy is. And I should say that in his uh, press conference just uh, a few days ago, uh, President Obama cited a very similar figure. He said about $1.5 trillion. Uh, again, given the uh, inherent uncertainty in these projections, $1.4 and $1.5 trillion are about about the same estimate. And just to be clear, your $1.5 trillion assumes the $1.2 trillion from sequestration, whether it's under the current sequestration formula or they come up with that $1.2 trillion otherwise. So, for example, if sequestration persists, then really you just need a $250-odd billion additional dollars. That's, very, that's exactly right, and, and I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, most people think that sequestration is not a very good policy. It's uh, you know it, it's a meat axe approach. It hits everything uh, proportionally, and moreover, uh, the discre- it, it affects primarily discretionary spending, which is uh, we, we both noted earlier has already been very uh, uh, severely limited by the Budget Control Act caps from 2011. And even adhering to those caps will reduce non-defense discretionary spending to uh, unprecedentedly low levels. And I might say that you know that uh, includes things, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the major functions of government, 
day-to-day uh, -day governmental activities, plus support of research and development. That means uh, National Institutes of Health, for example, something very, you know, a lot of your they listeners They would look probably, at a 6 or 7 percent cut. They would be facing a 6 or 7 percent cut under sequestration, in addition to the tight budget they're going to be facing anyway because of the, the, the Budget Control Act caps. So the point is that most people think that sequestration isn't a very good policy and that we should find some other way of bringing down future deficits. But, as you said, if sequestration were to go into effect, that would count against that additional $1.4 trillion, and it would, in fact, go most of the way towards achieving the numerical goal, even if it's not a very sound policy. Okay, before we go to savings, <clears throat> and specifically savings from derived from Medicare and Social Security, there is, again, the revenue side now, of course, the Republicans said they were through with net revenue after the fiscal cliff debate. That raised about $620 billion by closing or not extending some of the Bush-era tax cuts. However, there has been Republican talk about possibly closing some loopholes. Let's talk about the revenue side again, and maybe specifically let's talk about, because it's been in the President's budget, this issue of limiting deductions. Uh, certainly. Uh as you say, the you know one one option that's been discussed a lot is um, uh, trying to raise revenues in the as part of a comprehensive tax reform uh, effort, and that's uh, that's certainly doable, but that's uh, you know that's very uh, complicated. Uh, you know, one you know one the Congress would have to go and look at uh, each individual tax. Uh, preference, that is, the deductions and credits and exclusions, which treat various forms of income or spending uh, more favorably Tax than others. And it's, you know, that becomes a little bit, uh, uh, you know, when you're having to debate each of these uh, separately, the interest groups can get involved, and that's, that's, that's hard to do. So as an al alternative, or at least maybe a, a, a stopgap, the administration has uh, has uh, proposed, as you you've mentioned, uh, some sort of an overall limit on uh, the tax preferences that an individual taxpayer can claim. Primarily, although not exclusively, um, itemized deductions for things like uh, uh, charitable contributions, mortgage interest, uh, state and local taxes. Um, those are the those are some of the, the biggest items. What the administration has proposed is the is the following. You know, under the current system, um, itemized deductions provide a bigger benefit to the taxpayer. The uh, higher the marginal tax break, bra bracket that that taxpayer is in. Under the new tax law, the top bracket is going to go to be thirty nine point six percent. That means that a taxpayer at the very who has the highest level of income will uh, receive uh, a 39.6 cents uh, benefit for each dollar of his or her charitable contributions or mortgage interest or other uh, or, or other deduction. Someone in the lower bracket, 28% um, or whatever, would receive only a 28 cent on the dollar or an even lower benefit. What the administration has proposed is to cap the incremental benefit that a taxpayer would receive from uh, any of these deductions to 28%. So that's 
So that is, even if you're in the 39.6% tax bracket, you wouldn't get a 39.6 cent on the dollar benefit. Your benefit would be limited to 28 cents on the dollar. You'd still benefit. There would still be an incentive to make, for example, charitable contributions. Uh, if you had paid additional state and local taxes, you'd still get incremental benefit, just not quite as large as it otherwise would be. And that proposal would bring in a substantial amount of revenues uh, uh, over the next 10 years, I, the uh, roughly $500 billion uh, in round numbers. So, for example, if one were aiming for a balanced package, say, uh, uh, to achieve the $1.4 trillion in additional deficit reduction, half through taxes, half through spending, um, that proposal to cap uh, itemized deduction and other tax preferences would go, you know, far more than half the way towards achieving that goal. Okay, great. Let's move then on to savings from Medicare and Social Security. Now, the President and the House Speaker have discussed roughly four to five hundred billion dollars in savings from Medicare, and in fact, on several occasions now, they've come close to agreeing <laughs> to savings from Medicare. The Center for Budget has made a few proposals on ways they think best to derive savings from Medicare. Can you discuss a few of those? Um, sure. Um, one, uh, one such proposal, which is included in the administration budget and which we uh, thinks, uh, think makes a great deal of sense, is um, to provide for additional um, uh, rebates from drug manufacturers on the drugs that Medicare purchases on behalf of low-income Medicare beneficiaries, those who are also uh, eligible for the Medicaid program. Um, under, before the Medicare drug benefit was created back in the, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, those low-income people received their prescription drugs through Medicaid, which did uh, indeed receive substantial uh, rebates from drug manufacturers. Uh, it was argued at the time the new drug, Medicare drug benefit was established that the, the uh, that competition between different drug manufacturers would hold down the costs of the drugs in Medicare uh, so that those rebates would no longer be needed. Uh, it's turned out that while competition has had some desirable uh, results in the, in the Medicare drug benefit, uh, that it has not produced drug prices that are quite as low as what Medicaid uh, uh, receives. Uh, and if Medicare paid no more than what Medicaid pays for the drugs for these uh, low-income folks, uh, it would save, according to the Congressional Budget Office estimates, about $137 billion over 10 years. Again, that uh, would go a long way to meeting, say, a $400 billion uh, goal target. for a target for additional Medicare savings. So that's that's one example. Um, let me give you a, a, a second, uh, which is also uh, uh, in, in a one form in the administration budget as well. Um, Medicare uh, uh, Medicare beneficiaries pay premiums for parts B and D, the physician and the, the drug parts of uh, Medicare. For the typical beneficiary, those premiums cover about one quarter of the cost of the programs. Upper income people, and by that I mean uh, beneficiary individual beneficiaries with incomes over eighty-five thousand, or couples with incomes over 
$170,000 a year. Under pay, Medicare. Under Medicare, pay somewhat higher premiums on a sliding scale. So if you have very high incomes, you pay substantially more. If you're just over those mm -hmm. thresholds, you pay slightly uh, more. Slightly more. Um, the administration has proposed to increase those income-tested premiums by 15% and also to freeze those $85,000 and $170,000 thresholds for as many years as it takes to reach the point that 25% of Medicare beneficiaries are subject to those higher premiums. Um, we think, again, that that's a reasonable proposal and we think it might even be possible to speed up that phase in or apply it some, you know, uh, to additional beneficiaries and pick up even a bit more than the administration has proposed. But that's, um, again, by CBO's estimation, another $30 billion or so in savings over the next uh, 10 years. Again, we, you know, we're, you know, we, uh, you know any way of saving money in Medicare or elsewhere is going to be somewhat painful, but we think that it makes more sense if we're talking about premium increases, that they be focused on the higher income beneficiaries, not on the average beneficiary who, as I said, has only uh, earlier only about $25,000 a year in income. Okay, thank you. There are numerous other, of course, Medicare proposals, far too many for us to discuss uh, here. But let me just ask you a generic question about Medicare cost growth. As you know, for the past three years, there's been a three average 3.9% growth in Medicare costs. That is substantially below uh, the average over many years. So the question economists are always asked, so I'll ask you, is that just a, a consequence of the downturn in the economy, or do you think we'll see lower Medicare cost growth going forward as the economy slowly recovers? Well, um, quite frankly, David, I can't give you a definitive answer to that question. I th and anyone who says that he or she can, I think, is... Uh, um, uh, guessing. Is, 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 is guessing. Um, you know, I've been around long enough to have seen a period, fairly long periods in the past when health care cost growth has moderated um, only to pop back up again. So while it's certainly um, wonderful that we've had these several years of modest cost growth, um, I think it's too early to declare victory on that front. But, uh, you know, that having, that having been said, some uh, experts, people I'm, whom I regard very highly, such as Bob Reischauer, whom you, you, know, you interviewed just a couple of months ago, uh, you know, do think we have reason to be perhaps a little bit more um, uh, optimistic than, we, than in, the, in the past that's, that we're, you know, beginning to make some structural changes. And I think... Uh, the one that is potentially the most significant is that uh, physicians and other healthcare providers, I think, are beginning to become much more sensitive to costs themselves. Uh, and to think uh, when they suggest tests or treatments, whether uh, those tests or treatments are actually likely to have a significant benefit, um, to consider the uh, you know the possible. Uh, negative consequences, which uh, a lot of tests and treatments can have, and, uh, and to be more cautious in suggesting things to uh, their, their patients, because I think most of us tended to follow the recommendations of our doctors. So if doctors start to, to think twice uh, about 
uh, the cost of what they're doing, and that I think could have a tremendous uh, beneficial effect. Tempering the power of the pen, as they say. Right. Despite exactly. electronic health records. Let's move on to Social Security. And the center and you yourself have written a paper on this much-discussed issue in reforming Social Security, and that's chained CPI. So my first question, of course, is if you could explain to us, what is chained CPI? Okay, I'll try. It's a little, little, bit, uh, little bit complicated, but the, the consumer price index is um, uh, uh, data series that the Labor Department puts out, which uh, is designed to measure changes in consumers' uh, cost of living. Uh, and, of course, they want to do this for someone who is, in a sense, a typical or average consumer. And that's um, a little bit hard, you know, complicated because there is no such thing as an average consumer. Different people consume uh, different things. Some people, uh, you know, like to go to football games. Other go, others go to movies or have other f preferred forms of entertainment. Similarly, people eat different things. Some people... You know, like me, other people are vegetarians. So the BLS t what, uh, has to, you know, takes a survey roughly every two years, a uh, representative sample of the population to find out what people are, are buying. And they use that as the basis for uh, weighting or adding up the, uh, the price increase of different commodities. Because, of course, different goods and services uh, don't have prices that go up by the same amount. Some things uh, uh, may go up relatively more, others uh, others relatively less. So you have to uh, figure out how to add up those disparate uh, you know, rates of increase. Um, as I said, the current consumer price index um, has you know, what economists term the market basket. That is this. Uh, this uh, survey of what people actually spend their 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 household budgets on, that market basket gets updated roughly every two years. The so-called change CPI, um, in effect, updates the market basket constantly as people change their spending patterns from one month to the next, in part partly in response to changing prices. So, you know, for example, in your, uh, your, your food budget, uh, if the price of, uh, you know, oranges goes up uh, uh, relatively rapidly one month compared to the price of uh, apples, you may end up uh, spending more of your fruit budget on apples and slightly less on oranges. So it's or the substitution effect. It, it represents a substitution between different, uh, you know, d uh, different goods and, and, and services. Uh, or you know, if the uh, you know the price of movies goes up, you may do more online streaming from Netflix, or 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 again, vice versa, depending upon how mm -hmm. how prices are uh, how prices are changing. Um, the uh, you know the the statisticians in the labor department uh, have determined that you know if you actually look. And, and the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has produced, an, has produced uh, this so-called chain consumer price index um, as an alternative measure of inflation for the past 10 or 12 years or so. So we have an historical record to look at. And what we see is if you compare the current consumer price index with this alternative chain CPI, on average, uh, it increases about 0.3% per year 
less than the regular CPI. Now that's not a whole lot for one particular year, but it would mean, for example, if you used the change CPI instead of the current CPI to index Social Security benefits, those benefits would grow uh, by about 3% less over the course of 10 years. So that after, if someone had been on the Social Security rolls for 10 years, his or her benefit would be about 3% less than it otherwise would be. Um, one thing I need to, to point out, of course, is that there are a lot of uh, provisions on the tax side of the budget that are also indexed. And if the chain CPI were applied to those as well, you'd not only be modestly reducing the growth of Social Security benefits, but you would also be raising additional tax revenues because if you index the tax parameters uh, by a lower amount, people would move more slightly more quickly into higher tax brackets. Their uh, personal exemptions would be worth just marginally less so that we'd also pick up some additional tax revenues as well. Okay, and, and this, the resulting effect certainly then is we produce a 10-year <coughs> budget window savings. We produce... Exactly. You put you. Uh, uh, I uh, don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's uh, something about on the order of two hundred billion dollars over ten years. Uh, in the first ten years, weighted more towards benefit savings than tax increases. Although in the longer run, um, the tax effect becomes close to uh, you know closer to half of the total savings. Let me just ask one other question about Social Security, and then I'll have one, I think, remaining question. And that is, currently we tax Social Security on income up to, I believe, $113,000. So say if by September, October, you're lucky enough to have earned that amount of money, your mm -hmm. paychecks through the remainder of the calendar year do not pay the Social Security tax. So the question is, why don't we raise more rapidly, or why don't we just apply the Social Security tax regardless of how much money you make. This issue's been, again, brought up numerous times. What's, what's your understanding of where that's at? Um, that, I mean, there are a lot of people who think that would be a good thing to do, and I personally uh, include myself on the, on the list. Uh, as you know, Social Security uh, benefits are also based on the earnings on which you pay Social Security taxes. Um, Upper income people who pay uh, uh, additional Social Security taxes also get additional Social Security benefits on account of those additional payroll taxes, but not in proportion. It's the it's um, mathematically similar to, but the opposite of what how it works in the income tax. In the income tax, as your income goes up, you move into higher and higher marginal tax brackets. In Social Security, as your earnings go up you move into lower uh, benefit brackets, if you will, so that the, your additional dollar of earnings does mean you get additional benefits, but not as much as proportionally as a lower-income person does. Why am I saying, you know, going into, into that detail? It's because if we're going to increase the uh, limit on which people pay Social Security taxes, we also have to think about how that's going to tie into the benefit uh, side of the equation. That's why I, for one, don't think we should get rid of the ceiling without limit, but I do think it's reasonable to raise it above the current amount. 
Currently, the the threshold is now about one hundred and thirteen thousand dollars in twenty thirteen. Um, is sufficiently high that somewhere around 83 to 85% of all earnings are subject to the Social Security tax. Back in the early 1980s, that ratio was 90%, and it's eroded in part because of a phenomenon you may be familiar with, which is the growing uh, disparity in earnings growth. A lot of the earnings growth has occurred at the The very top of the income distribution. And uh, the net result of that, and we're not going to get into the arithmetic, is that because the Social Security earnings limit is indexed by average earnings, a lot of which have accrued to people at the top, it's meant that uh, it hasn't uh, continued to, uh, uh, it hasn't kept pace with uh, uh, overall earnings uh, growth. So the ratio of covered of taxable to total earnings has shrunk from mm-hmm. 90 to about 80, 83 to 85%. Okay. In my view, um, I think it would be reasonable to go back to that 90% level, not all at once, but phased in over you know, maybe 10 years or so. That would mean you'd get up to about, in, t- in today's dollars, that would be about $210,000. Um, I think um, that we should pay additional benefits on those additional taxes that a person would pay, although perhaps we could lower the incremental rate. Um, and it would it, uh, it doesn't um, uh, by itself uh, solve Social Security's uh, long-run financing shortfall, but it would make a significant contribution, mm-hmm. and I think it would be another part, along with the chain CPI, of a, a reasonable package to move Social Security towards solvency. Okay, we do have time for one, I'll try to squeeze in this one last question, and that's this issue mostly made on the Republican side of the aisle, and that's this generic issue called dynamic scoring. So I think it would be very helpful if you can give us just a very brief explanation of, and you've written on this, or CBPP has written on this subject of dynamic scoring unfavorably. So what what is it, and why is it a problematic idea? Okay. Um, this is an also an issue with which I've been, you know, familiar from my you know, many years at the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, and the Congressional Budget Office, of course, is the you know the agency which Congress relies on to provide its uh, uh, budget estimates. Um, and most of the numbers I've been citing here on our this in this discussion have been Congressional Budget Office numbers. Um, in assessing the cost of uh, legislation, whether that's legislation to raise taxes or lower them for that matter, or legislation to change federal spending for Social Security, Medicare, uh, some other program, uh, all of those estimates are likely to depend, to depend upon the underlying economic assumptions. Um, uh, you know, for example, if um, uh, you know, just even the rate of inflation. We've been talking about mm-hmm. cost of living increases. So the rate of inflation assumptions are important. Of course, the, the total economic output is important as well, and particularly on the tax side of the ledger, because uh, the uh, higher the level at which the economy is operating, uh, the more tax, tax collections are going to be. So uh, by long-standing practice, CBO bases its uh, its budget estimates 
on a particular economic forecast, a particular set of economic projections. Um, and uh, whether tax rates are high or low, whether Medicare spending is assumed to be uh, this way or, or that way, uh, whether we use the regular CPI or the chain CPI, CBO is just uses this one given set of economic assumptions. Some people have proposed that uh, the Congressional Budget Office should vary its economic assumptions depending upon what budget policies are assumed. So that, for example, and in particular, uh, the people who advocate this approach um, <coughs> particularly suggest that um, if uh, CBO and the Joint uh, Congressional Committee on Taxation, which, uh, which works on the revenue estimates, uh, is considering tax cuts, in their view, those tax cuts are likely to uh, have uh, economic benefits, the economy would be stronger, and they suggest that those economic feedbacks should be taken into account in the estimating process. Um, that proposal is uh, for uh, is, is often described uh, in budget shorthand as dynamic scoring. Um, the Congressional Budget Office has long argued that that would not be a good idea, um, and the 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 simple uh, you know there, there's a, it, like anything there's a lot of complications to it. But the basic the basic problem is that um, you know economic knowledge basically isn't good enough to uh, produce sound estimates of how the economy is going to respond to. Uh, specific changes in budget policy. Um, and in fact, those differences can even have different signs in the short run and the long run. Obviously, in the, in the near term, um, uh, you know, raising, you know, say, you know, lowering taxes uh, would put more money in people's pockets and could stimulate the economy. But in the longer run, it adds to the deficit and that can have negative consequences for the economy. And trying to figure out how that all that would all work itself through, uh, how rapidly those effects would take place, again, that's just something which economists like myself can't estimate with sufficient precision. I believe, and CBO has argued, uh, that it should be explicitly incorporated into the budget estimating process. So not sufficient confidence in. Not sufficient confidence, and budget estimates are uncertain enough as it is. <laughs> Uh, there, without adding that extra level of uncertainty, and a lot of people track CBO's track record in their ten-year projections <coughs> already. Well, we've yeah. covered a lot of ground, yeah. Paul, and we're at our time boundary. So let me say thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been a welcome to have this discussion. Thank you. Good. Thank you very much.